We're continuing our study through the book of Isaiah. So would you please stand with me in honor of God's Word as we read Isaiah 8, verses 9 through 22. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is God's word. You may be seated. Okay, so this is obviously Advent season, and season where we focus on, ponder in special ways. Hopefully, we're focusing on and pondering our Savior Jesus year-round, but we have a special opportunity to do it at this time of year. I mean, I don't know how much time you've actually spent in your life really pondering the Incarnation. I mean, this is crazy, crazy wild stuff to think of God taking on flesh forever. Jesus still has a body in heaven. How's that even possible? How can fully God, fully man, dwell in one being on this earth? How how does that work? I mean, there's just so many questions that you could, if you actually stop and start to think about the miracle of the incarnation, we hear the Christmas story and, you know, you watch Linus tell the thing again and again, and we can just get dulled and indifferent to it. This is miraculous, crazy, wild stuff. So we need to capture this time and give time to pondering the wonder and the glory of the incarnation. God in the flesh. What? (laughs) So, if you or if I had written the story 
what would God in the flesh, what would he have come like? Would he have been like Hercules? Would he have been like Thor? Okay, well, I'm going to read you a book. This is my introduction. It's called This Is No Fairy Tale. Um, I actually sat in a class at Wheaton with this guy. And so kids, if you might want to check with your parents afterwards to make sure they understand this, okay? So you guys listen carefully, and you might want to just ask them afterwards if they caught it all, okay? All right. If you can see the pictures, I'll try. So we all love to hear fairy tales, don't we? They're always filled with exciting adventures, but we know that they're just pretend. This story is very different. It really happened. The Bible says that a long time ago, God, the one who created all things, decided to become a real human person, just like us. His name was Jesus. He came to live with people because he loved us so much and wanted to show us what God was really like. Doesn't that sound wonderful? But some people think it sounds too wonderful. They think it must be just another fairy tale. How can we be sure it really happened? If this were a fairy tale, Jesus would have been born in a big castle in a great kingdom. His parents would have been the king and queen, and all the people in the kingdom would have celebrated the, prince, the birth of the new prince. The truth is, Jesus was born to a poor family in a small country. In fact, he wasn't even born in a house, but in a stable where animals were, are kept. And no one even knew about it except a few shepherds who came to see him. If this were a fairy tale, the young prince Jesus would have been taught to rule over people so that when he grew up, he would become their king. The truth is, Jesus learned to work hard with his hands. His father taught him how to make things for people out of wood. If this were a fairy tale, King Jesus would be too important to talk with little children. The only chance they would have to see him would be when he rode by in his horse-drawn carriage. The truth is, Jesus loved to spend time with children. He was very kind and taught them many things. If this were a fairy tale, Jesus would have, would have many servants in the castle to take care of him and to do whatever he wanted. The truth is, Jesus served other people. Many times he did wonderful miracles to heal sick people. He made blind people see again. He made lame people walk again. He even brought dead people back to life. There is nothing that Jesus couldn't do for those he loved. If this were a fairy tale, King Jesus would be very, very rich. He would own beautiful houses and land and horses and clothes. Inside his castle, he would have a big room filled with so much gold and treasure that he could buy everything he ever wanted. The truth is, Jesus was a poor man. He loved doing the work of God so much that he didn't think much about, have, he didn't think much about money and the things he could buy. He didn't have fancy clothes to wear or even a house to sleep in. He didn't have a horse to ride. Instead, he had to borrow a donkey from someone else to ride into the city. If this were a fairy tale, Jesus' people would always be loyal to him. If an enemy ever tried to hurt him, they would fight to protect their king. The truth is, one of Jesus' friends told his enemies where they could catch him. When soldiers came to arrest Jesus, his other friends were afraid and ran away. If this were a fairy tale, King Jesus would have lived a long life and died in his bed surrounded by his family and friends. The truth is, when Jesus was still a young man, the people killed him. They treated him like a criminal, even though he was good. Isn't that terrible? If this were a fairy tale, Jesus would be the leader of a large army of soldiers. He would rule over many lands by conquering them in battle. He would fight to save his people from their enemies. 
The truth is, Jesus came to teach people about the kingdom of God. He didn't come to fight wars. He came to save people from their sins. Jesus was not the kind of fairy tale leader they wanted, so they killed him. If this were a fairy tale, Jesus' grave would be very large and fancy. People would come and bring flowers, showing how much they loved their king. The truth is, he was buried in a cave. And when Jesus' friends came there, they saw it was empty. Do you know what happened? Jesus came back to life again and showed himself to his friends to prove that everything he said was true. If this were a fairy tale, the story would end when Jesus died. The truth is, this story is still going on. Jesus is alive right now in heaven with his friends. And the best part is that you and I can be part of the story. If we love Jesus and want him to be our king, we can be his friends too and one day live with him forever. Do you like that? If you and I trust in Jesus, this story will turn out much better than a fairy tale for us. We really will live happily ever after. But, as he said in the introduction, we often live like the good news about Jesus. God with us, Emmanuel, is just a fairy tale. See, everything changes if we believe Emmanuel, that God is with us. And that's what we're going to see in Isaiah 8 this morning. That's actually what we need to see from Isaiah 8 this morning. So make sure you're turned there, and we're going to need to do a little bit of review here. So for some of you, review means checkout time. Please don't do that, Um, because you really do. Sunday shouldn't just be eat a fish, but also be taught to fish. In other words, grasp the storyline so that you can feed on Isaiah all the more in the future. Okay? So you actually do need to know the story, the history, not because we all just want to be able to throw out the facts and answer all the questions, but because Isaiah is hard to understand if you don't know what was happening at that time in history, that part of the story. Okay? So here's the flow of the narrative so far. Judah, southern kingdom, that's where Isaiah was ministering. The kingdom had been divided. Northern kingdom was referred to as Israel oftentimes, and the southern kingdom, Judah. Judah is in serious spiritual decline. Their rebellion against God is blatant. They don't seem to know or care. Okay, so the book of Isaiah, chapters 1 to 5, describes their condition and then warns them of God's judgment. In chapter 6, It starts out and says, in the year that King Uzziah died. So King Uzziah reigned for over 50 years. Judah prospered under his leadership. But with that prosperity, they hollowed out spiritually. Okay, so their great leader was dead. And the political military threats from the north and east are growing. And it's in that context that Isaiah had his vision in the temple. He saw the Lord high and lifted up and the hem of his robe filled the temple. He sees the holiness of God really encountering this living God, more than a concept, but it's reality to him, and he is just undone, coming apart at the seams. And he pronounces a woe on himself. This is the prophet. 
the holy man. And he, in the light of God's glory and holiness, he pronounces the woe on himself. I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips. He knows he's unclean. He deserves to die. And then one of the seraphim, name means, this term means burning ones, this awesome creature, flies at him with a live coal in tongs from the altar. So you can imagine he's thinking, I'm toast. But rather than taking Isaiah's life, the Lord takes away his sin. He atones for his sin. And then the Lord says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah willingly responds with, here I am, send me. So he gets his job description, and it is a tough one. He is actually going to make the people of Judah blind and deaf and dull by his preaching. Rather than the truth melting the ice, it's going to be hardening the clay. Okay, so he responds with, how long? Uh." And the Lord says, until Judah is laid waste. Then, chapter 7, the first audience that we read of for Isaiah's ministry is King Ahaz, son of Uzziah. He is shaking like a leaf because Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel are in league together to come down to conquer him. Okay? They're afraid of the Assyrians to their north and east, and they wanted to strengthen their position against that onslaught. Okay? The Assyrians were like, I mean, they were the world power at the time. They were like the Nazi war machine. Okay? So Syria and Israel were looking to create some allied powers resistance. Okay? So Ahaz had a choice down here in the southern kingdom. God made that choice crystal clear to him. He could fret and strategize, try to take matters into his own hands, which is what he was doing when when Isaiah, God sent Isaiah to go talk to him. Or he could trust the king, the king of kings, to whom the nations, even the Assyrians, are just a drop in the bucket. Okay? So in 7.4, you can look back there, God said to him through Isaiah, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. They're just going to burn out at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. So in 770 said, it shall not stand. Their desire to come down and conquer you, it shall not come to pass. They're not going to attack you. You're fretting over a false threat. The real threat, Ahaz, is your unbelief. And it's driven home by the exhortation at the end of 7-9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. And what did Ahaz choose? He chose to forsake the Lord, take matters into his own hands. He saddled up next to Assyria. He sends this, like all this gold and silver from the temple, all this stuff that was supposed to be holy to the Lord. He sends it to Assyria to buy him off, to buy his protection, like buying a bodyguard. Pays this hefty sum to ensure Assyria's protection from Syria and Assyria. He buys off Assyria to protect himself from Syria and Israel coming down. So it was an unnecessary decision. They're not going to attack you, the Lord said. It's a costly decision, and it ends up having far-reaching implications. So eventually, Assyria would double back on Judah and all but destroy it, okay? So Ahaz thought he was making this wise diplomatic decision, but instead he sealed his kingdom's fate. Look at 8.5. The Lord spoke to me again. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently, that's an image, a word picture of the nature of God's 
kingship. It's gentle and good. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, Euphrates, which ran through Assyria, mighty and many. So Ahaz thought, God's not going to do anything. Assyria is really powerful. I need to be linked up with Assyria. Well, yeah, they were powerful. And now the power of that flood is going to come against you. It's going to sweep on into Judah, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Now, here's here's where we start to enter into the story here. Imagine you're Isaiah, or imagine that you're one in Judah who was listening to Isaiah and following him because he had the Word of God, rather than following this other leader, the rebellious Ahaz. What does this mean for you? It means that you are now living under the threat of coming judgment, even though you're trusting the Lord. So you're paying for the sin and unbelief of Ahaz and all these other folks in in Judah. You're going to have to deal with the consequences, despite the fact that you're trusting the Lord. Certainly that's true for Isaiah, right? So this may be a whole lot more relevant of a scenario than we realize. Think of when the housing bubble burst back in 2007. For some of you, I know this is like, whoa, very much right at home, close to home. So many Americans were hardworking, they were wise savers, they were looking forward to a comfortable retirement, but due to the short-sightedness and the greed of a relative few, the many who had no complicity at all paid a heavy price. There may be other ways this dynamic could play out for us in the days to come. Okay? Think of the moral decline in the U.S. and what it may mean for Christians in this country. Okay? Like losing tax-exempt status. Okay, that's, is that really that big of a deal? No, not compared to what other Christians face in other countries. You know, pastors could end up in prison. Christians could end up in prison down the road. Or, you know, in recent days, think of the HHS mandate and the companies like Hobby Lobby or schools like Wheaton College and some others that could literally be ruined if they don't comply to the HHS mandate, you know, and supplying um, abortifacient, you know, um, birth control for their employees being required to do that. So anyway, you could imagine being one of these leaders of this school or of this company and you could compromise your beliefs and stay afloat or you could face fines that would quickly ruin you. Now, obviously, we have a court system, and so some of that's getting worked out there. But imagine that they lose. Imagine the courts decide against the school, the, the, the company. Imagine you're one of the employees in one of those companies. Imagine the courts decide against your company or your college, and you lose your job. That's the situation. It's actually a lot worse because the Syrians were going to come, and, and there's a physical threat and all kinds of things, exile, and you'd be like a slave. So that's the situation with the remnant of the faithful in Judah. How are they going to face this threat? Will they begin to wring their hands, cave into fear in the face of these growing threats, or will they continue to trust the Lord, knowing that he's in control of history, even though they know it's going to be painful? They're going to have to go through the judgment. So what we'll see in Isaiah 8, 9 to 22, is that when God is with us, 
even when we have to walk through really hard times, it could even be a health thing that comes up not because of your not because of your fault, but because of someone else's. Let's say in the workplace, someone wasn't careful with compliance and whatnot, and you were exposed to something, and so you're gonna get, you got cancer because of someone else's. All kinds of things like that can happen. So how do you respond when that threat comes? In Isaiah 8, 9 to 22, when God is with us, we will have confidence, fear, the right kind of fear, and truth the light of truth rather than the darkness of unbelief. Okay, so that's our outline for this morning. When God is with us, when we really know God is with us, we will have confidence, the right kind of fear, not the wrong kind of fear, and truth, the light of truth rather than the darkness of unbelief. So look at the first point here, confidence in verses 9 and 10. When God is with us, Emmanuel, that's what that word means, we will have confidence. Again, remember back to chapter 7, The Lord is so patient, he's so merciful, that he actually offered to Ahaz to perform a sign to bolster his faith, even though he was fretting. He's trying to figure out how to deliver his people. He refused that sign. In his kind of proud unbelief, he refused it, and God said, you know what, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And what could have been a sign of deliverance, it's going to become a sign of judgment. Look back at 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin, or better, young woman, shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. So basically, immediate context, God's saying that Isaiah is going to have a son. We read about that in chapter 8 right at the beginning. And before that boy is old enough to know right from wrong, the threat that has Ahaz shaking like a leaf is going to be totally extinguished. Then will come the real threat. The Assyrians will come and really wreak havoc. Look at 8.8. They will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. This is the second time we hear Emmanuel. So God is with Judah, with his people, and sadly for those who have rejected him or not listening to him, he will be with them for judgment due to their rebellion, due to their unbelief. Isaiah is going to pay for the unbelief of Ahaz and his fellow countrymen. You know that according to tradition, Isaiah was sawn in two under Manasseh, king after Hezekiah. So he paid for the unbelief in this trajectory that Ahaz set his people on. But as soon as Isaiah says, your land, O Emmanuel, in 8.8, he's reminded of what's ultimately true. He knows the truth that God is with his people and the wicked will ultimately not win in the end, even if he gets sawn in two. So he says with confidence, here we are now at our passage. Again, a lot of background, but this helps us get what's here. He says with confidence, in the face of this growing imminent threat from the Assyrians, be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. So imagine just being this helpless person, and the Nazi war machine is coming, and you're going to get chewed up in the gears. 
and being able to say, you know what? It's ultimately not going to stand. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing eventually. Speak a word, but it will not stand. Why? Because God is with us. Isaiah and the faithful remnant, those who were trusting in the Lord, could say with confidence, ultimately, these schemes and strategies, they won't stand because God is with us. So knowing, really knowing that God is with you produces this kind of confidence. So those following Ahaz and his calculating unbelief, you know, taking everything that matters into his own hands, they shake like a leaf in the face of threats. The remnant following Isaiah faced the threat with confidence because God is with them. So the schemes of the nations will fail because they're based on human self-reliance and ambition and fear of man. Isaiah is the representative of the remnant, the faithful small group that's following the Lord. Isaiah is not to fear what others fear. They can be confident because God is, he's already told them how the story's going to end. They know how it ends. God wins. The schemes of man won't stand. So all selfishly ambitious striving, all conquering, persecuting will ultimately fail. No scheme, no weapon can ultimately stand against God's people. So try as you might, peoples, in the end, it will not stand, for God is with us. Okay, now listen, put this together with what's going on. The fact that God is with us, whether Isaiah or you and me, doesn't mean we'll be spared from the devastating effects of sin. Isaiah was going to be sawn in two. He was going to go through all kinds of hard things. And the fact that God is with Isaiah, with us, also means that no scheme of man, no scheme of the devil can ultimately stand against us. So both of those things are true. We may go through the fire, but we won't be burned. They may kill us, but not a hair of our head will perish. So when we know God is with us, we can face any threat with confidence because we know that ultimately God wins. And if God is with us because he's for us, who can be against us? So hear the New Testament version of this. Flip to Romans 8, and again, don't let the familiarity with this text dull you to its power. Just hear this good news again for everyone who's in Christ by grace through faith in Jesus. God is for us. He's with us. And we know, Romans 8, 28, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. How do we know that? Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Getting sawn in two can't break that chain. And if being sawn in two can't do it, then whatever the threat in our lives can't do it either. 
What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, Emmanuel, God with us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God is with us, we can have confidence, even in the face of the most severe threat, because we know how it all turns out in the end. And we know who's in charge of each and every turn of human history. So the question is whether or not Romans 8 or the truths of God is with us in Isaiah 8, whether that's just a concept or whether it's a reality in our hearts. We need to see the Lord like Isaiah did, high and lifted up, if we're going to believe these truths, especially when it counts, especially when the threats are right there in front of us. Because you know what? Naturally, we face scenarios like this, any kind of threat, we face it with fear. That's our knee-jerk reaction. That's our knee-jerk response, right? So that brings us to our second point. When God is with us, Emmanuel, we will not fear. He will be our fear. Look at verses 11 to 15. For the Lord spoke thus to me, the Lord speaking to Isaiah, and he's recounting this, with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, Him you shall regard as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. Okay, so the Lord knows how the temptations to fear rise as the threats rise. And the Lord knew the future for Isaiah, the future for the rest of Judah, So he knew what was coming and how hard it would be for anyone trying to be faithful, trying to trust the Lord through this. So he gives Isaiah a lovingly firm word, strong hand upon me. He gives him a lovingly firm word to Isaiah, to all who will trust in the Lord. Don't fear what they fear. I know it's going to be hard. Listen to this word. You can bank on it. Don't walk in the way of this people. Don't be fretful and fearful, paranoid like everybody else, obsessing on what all, all the what-ifs and contingencies. So, again, this is, there's nothing new under the sun. This is just like our story. Is there any difference between us Christians and the world around us in the way that we react to threats? In the way that people who don't know God who haven't seen his glory and the way that we respond, or are we just as fretful and enslaved to our fears as they? Why would that be? If we are responding just like these people in the way of this people, could it be that we really don't believe that God is with us? Just functionally, like really, when the rubber meets the road? 
Maybe he's more of a distant concept than a near reality with us. So this text is here as a firm, loving word to us. Oh, how we need to pray for eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to perceive his glory and his nearness and the fact that he's with those who trust in him. Verse 13, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. It's the same language as in the Lord's prayer. Hallowed be your name. You could even translate this as him you shall sanctify. It's kind of weird because we think sanctify, becoming holy, made more like Jesus. Well, no, it's setting something apart. So what does that mean? We regard him as the holy, transcendent, great, glorious one that he really is in the way that we respond to life and threats and everything. So the opposite of regarding God as holy is trifling with him and treating him as a non-factor, treating him as a nothing. It's the opposite of belittling God and acting as if he's not in the equation in our lives. Man, don't we do that? So we basically react as if God's not in the equation. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread, which sounds like that's scary. No, it's freeing because if you fear the Lord, you have nothing left to fear, not even the Lord. He will become a sanctuary. Look at, the, look at it there in verse 14. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary. He's what we need. Why do you and I, why do we run to other so-called sanctuaries, refuges, like food? Food's a good thing, but we can treat it like a God thing. We can run to it like a refuge like a sanctuary, comfort food, alcohol. Again, good thing can become something that we treat like a savior to rescue us from our troubles. Drugs, sleep, porn, not a good thing. (laughs) Gambling, video games even. We can just run to these things and hide. TV, our escapes and sources of comfort and refuge. Or on the other hand, sometimes what we do is our minds, we, they run and spin and with anxiety and what ifs, and we obsess with how to avoid the threats that we fear. And the reason we do that is because God is unreal at that moment. So story that I recently heard again, was reminded of, um, Martin Luther, the great reformer, um, 1500s, he was, he actually got married even though he's a monk, you know, um, that's a whole other story. So this, this former nun, Catherine von Bora, who he married was pretty plucky, okay, she, she was like a nun with an attitude, um, perfect match for Luther. Um, anyway, if you're, if you're depressed, you need to read some Luther, Luther. He'll, he'll lift your spirits. Um, so he was depressed and despairing one day. So Katie decided to put on black dress for that day. <laughs> and Luther asked her, he said, are you going to a funeral? No, she responded. But since you act as though God is dead, I wanted to join you in the morning. <laughs> we all need a friend like that. <laughs> okay, so when God is unreal to us, we won't run to him. And when we don't run to him, 
he won't be a sanctuary for us. So we should fear not fearing the Lord. We should fear this kind of unbelief. This unbelief itself should cause us, when we see it, to run to the Lord as our refuge and help. Oh, deliver me from myself, from the blindness and dullness that makes me treat you like a non-factor, like you're not even in the equation. Help me trust in you. You be my fear, not these other little piddly things over here that look so big when you're not in the equation. But those who forsake the Lord and fear everything and everyone else but Him, verse 14 continues, He will either be a sanctuary or a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. So the Lord is saying very clearly here, fear me, reverence me, treat me as holy and great and worthy like I am. He's not some celestial egomaniac. He really is these things, and he wants to be that strong tower for us. See me as that, treat me as that, and I will be your sanctuary. Treat me like a non-factor, and I will be a stumbling block and a snare to you. John Oswald, one of the commentators that I've been reading, writes this, those who will not make a place for him will keep colliding with him and tripping over him, for he is there, whether they acknowledge him or not. Because he is a fact of which their hypothesis does not take account, their experiment will keep failing, and he will be the cause of it, not because of some vindictive streak in him, but simply because he is, and they are trying to live as if he were not. A sanctuary or a stone of stumbling and a snare, those are the options. There isn't a third way. So if we see his reality, we run to him, we will find atonement and refuge. If we ignore his reality, we will run into him and we will stumble and fall and be broken. So the remnant back then, but the people of God, faithful people of God now, the Lord knows who are his, shouldn't fear what other people fear. The Lord should be our fear. And the fear of the Lord is the kind of fear that makes us run and hide in Him, not run from Him. So fear the Lord and you will have nothing left to fear, not even the Lord. He will be a sanctuary for you. This language is picked up in the New Testament in relation to Jesus and the cross. Okay, why is the cross either, why is Jesus either a sanctuary or a stumbling block? Well, if you think you can justify yourself, I'm a pretty good person, I'm better than most? I mean, I'm sure God would. If you think you don't need divine rescue from, your, from the judgment that your sin deserves, if you think you don't need Jesus to pay the debt of your sin that you could never pay, then instead of him being a sanctuary and a refuge and a savior, he will be a stumbling block and a snare. So you see how foolish that would be? The text is here. You are here this morning. <laughs> I'm here this morning to be warned and to be kept from stumbling and falling and being ensnared by our unbelief. This text is here. You and I are here, not by accident, but to be reminded, to be appealed to, to run to Jesus as our sanctuary of refuge and deliverance. And when we do, we'll have nothing left to fear. 
We're going to have confidence, and we are going to have not the wrong kind of fear like everybody else. God's going to be our fear, and we're going to be fearless. So if God is with us and God is for us, whom shall we fear? And finally, when God is with us, Emmanuel, we will have light, and we will love that light. We will love the truth. Look at verses 16 to 22. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I know that the judgment is necessary. He's hiding his face rather than blessing the nation as a whole. So I'm going to wait for him. I'm going to trust in him. I'm going to endure the hardness that's coming. I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Um, There was a lot of spiritism back at that time, and it was thought that the the dead kind of spoke in, in chirps and whisperings and... Isaiah says, no, to the teaching, to the testimony, to the truth. If they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no light, no dawn. It's just darkness. So as things get darker, as they got darker for them, as they get darker for us, all the more reason, all the more urgent reason to run to the light of God's word, his testimony, his teaching. Those who reject the light of God's word, will oftentimes, if they've, again, rejected that light, they will turn and believe anything. Just think of someone who turns their back on the church and on God's word, and then they turn to horoscopes and superstition and occults and occult practices. That's what's going on. So the options of other sources of light and truth will multiply, and people will encourage you to go everywhere but to the word of God, like in 2 Timothy 4.3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths, which is why Paul charges Timothy to preach the word. So the point of this section is clear. Trust my word. Wait. Hope. And pass it on to future generations that will listen. Don't look to other sources of revelation. Look to my word, to the teaching, to the testimony. If you will not speak according to this word, you are in darkness. You have no dawn. So if you and I, if we refuse the light of God's word, we will have the darkness that we chose, that we loved. And we will end up hating it. Look at what happens in verses 21 and 22. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And then they'll look down, they'll look around to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So if you reject the light, choose darkness. If you don't look up at God, look to Him, things will... Go hard and you will speak contemptuously against God and you'll stumble and fall. He's giving you just what you wanted, just what you chose. And then these same people, they look around to earth and there's nothing but darkness. And it's all a result of turning away from the truth. Looking up with anger, looking down with disappointment, maybe that describes some people that you know. But to those who look to the Lord, they're radiant 
and they will never be disappointed. So we don't have any Assyrians breathing down our necks, but you know what? There's nothing new under the sun. Same dynamics of fear in the face of threats are present in our lives. We're tempted to follow the way of the world and fear like everybody else fears. Fear what everyone else fears. But we are offered here in Isaiah 8 and in the whole of the Bible, Emmanuel, God with us, through the gospel of Jesus. And on this side of the cross, in the sending of the Spirit, the good news of the gospel is not only, not to downplay it, but not only God with us, it's God in us. So last point, when Emmanuel dwells in us, Jesus came and died that we would be reconciled with the Father, that the greatest threat, our sin and God's just wrath, could be removed. And when that greatest fear is removed, then God is for us. But He didn't just write this message on new tablets of stone and give them to us. If you're a Christian, this good news is written on your heart. Jesus returned to the Father, sent the Spirit to dwell within us. Talk about God with us. (laughs) The God of the universe dwells within us by His Spirit. There is power in Him, in the Spirit, for confidence in the face of threats. There is illumination in Him to see God as the holy, holy, holy God that He is. He's so big and great and people and other threats are small. Okay, listen to 2 Timothy 1.7. God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And the spirit who dwells within us is the spirit of truth. So Jesus, God with us, dies, raise, rises again, sends his spirit, God within us, so that we can have confidence, so that we can be fearless, so that the truth of God is written on our hearts. The Spirit dwells within us. He's the Spirit of truth. He loves to shine the light of God's truth into our hearts, shine the light on the path so that we can walk in the Lord's way, the way that hallows His name as our Father in heaven. So can we end by just reflecting here for a moment and praying quietly for this confidence in Him and proper fear of him and not fearing all these horizontal threats, freedom from those wrongful fears, and praying for a love for the truth and a desire to walk in the light and not follow the darkness. Let's just, let's just take a moment here to evaluate, examine our own hearts, and pray that the Lord would make his glory more real to us, that it would not just be a concept but a reality to us, and that by His Spirit, because of all the gospel promises that are ours through Christ, we would have more confidence, we would be fearless, and we would love the truth and run to His Word so that it leads and guides us in His path. So just a few moments of quiet reflection, and then we're going to sing as a prayer To close, oh, come, come, Emmanuel. Be God with me, really. Not just a concept in my head, but a reality in my heart.
Heavenly Father, hallowed be your name. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For the glory of Christ, amen.